When Alicia was in grade two, she wasn't the world's greatest athlete, but she wasn't the worst either. October 5th, 1996. I ran in a great race on Saturday, and I finished in 698th place out of 700. And I liked it. That's Alicia documenting her status at the back of the pack. I'm Dan Meisner, and this... This is Grown Ups Read Things They Wrote As Kids. How are you doing? It is very, very nice to see you all. This is a show where we go back in time to remember the good, the bad, and the awkward parts of growing up. This time, recorded live in Vancouver, we have Rites of Passage, a bloody cop drama, Love at First Sight at an Our Lady Peace concert, and much, much more. This stuff is weird, it is wonderful, and like coming in 698th in a 700-person race, it's all about heart. So think about who you were when you were a kid, and stick around. So much of what we hear on stage is about what social scientists call liminality, these moments of transition in life where things are especially confusing because we're changing. We're not who we used to be, but we're not yet who we're going to become. That's liminality, the awkwardness of being in between. Our next reader, Deborah, shared a few selections from the diary she kept in 1971, written over the course of about two weeks. And they're all about a very particular rite of passage. Please welcome Deborah to the Grown Ups Three Things They Wrote Us Kids stage. Proof that God is a man. Who else would think of having girls bleed from their private area? (laughs) And God must be angry at me because he planned it to happen on Sunday at the Holman's pool party. I, I was vainly showing off my new bathing suit. David laughed in his sneaky way and asked me where the mud was I had sat in. I was so embarrassed and scared, and I had to go home with a towel wrapped around me. Mrs. Holman looked sympathetic and told me to see my mother. Diary, it was not red. It was coming from my body in brown clumps, and it hasn't stopped. And when you go to the bathroom, it sticks to the pad I have to wear because I'm getting hairs. It it is all so awful. Mom says I will get used to it and to be happy because this is natural. I am growing up. My breasts will start to break through my skin now. And I will get pimples. Naturally awful, I say. I hate, hate, hate the safety pins and the belt that I have to wear to hold up the pad between my legs. I can't walk and Dad and David just laugh. I can't go to school tomorrow. Everyone will know. I don't have a purse to carry supplies. And Barb says that if you need pads, you have to go to the principal's office and ask the secretary. She is always miserable. I don't like her. She hands it to you in a brown paper lunch bag, I am told. I'm so upset, and it just makes me have more cramps. I feel sick. 
I learned this happens to every woman in the world, even those in Africa. It must be horrible because they don't even have clothes to wear. What do they do? Mandy's in heat and bleeds all over the kitchen floor. Mom says this is because she's not spayed. They're going to the vets next week. I asked if I could get spayed too. Dad, Dad just laughed and told me I was stupid. I'm, I'm worried about dry humping too, like she does. She does it to our legs all the time. I've not started doing that yet, but maybe I will. I think there is more going on than Mom and Nancy are saying. Everything about this is awful. This has been a hard, hard week. The most difficult of my life. It is so difficult to share with you, diary, because it is yucky. Really, truly the yuckiest. Mom says I'm becoming a woman, but I don't want that. I'm only 12. Barb told me I can now have a baby, but who wants that before I even have my babysitting badge? <laughs> this will happen every 28 days until I am as old as Norma. It's, it's called a cycle. I will need a calendar. And Nancy calls the bleeding the time of the month. When it happened on Sunday, Mom says, oh, now I understand why you had been so extra hard to tolerate on Saturday. <laughs> she said she should have seen the signs. I couldn't stop crying. I just wanted to be alone and eat chips. <laughs> this will also happen every month of my life. It is called pre-blood. I have to lay on the floor now with my legs up on the couch to get comfortable watching TV. My back hurts. My life is over before it even begins. I thought it was going to be beautiful becoming a woman like Anne-Marie and that girl or Mary Richards in Minneapolis. They must get their periods too. How do they keep it a secret from Donald or Lou? A dog ran across the street and sniffed me today. Horrible. I asked Barb if boys bleed from their bums so they can make babies too, and if it makes them to be in a bad mood like Andrew Fraser. She says they get premature ejaculation from their pee parts. But she didn't know what that was. She just kept flicking her finger at me. We we need to look at the book from her mom, Doris, called What Every Girl Should Know. Some older girls were talking in the bathroom at school. It is like a secret club, those that have begun and those that have not. I have only told Darlene, Janice, and Barb. Mom has gotten me a present. She is trying her best to make me feel better. I will now have a monthly subscription to Miss Chatelaine magazine to celebrate my monthly. I don't feel like celebrating. This is no party. Now everywhere I look, I see blood. There was an article in the paper about Judy Chicago doing an art installation on Menzies with a completely red bathroom with the garbage can full of rolled up pads. How disgusting. 
I have heard that boys play with themselves all the time and leave stains on sheets. But I never heard of a girl who plays with themselves. Is that another natural thing, diary? I wish you could talk to me. You are my best friend, and I'm scared. I keep staring at everyone's private parts at school. Even Miss Weebs to see if they're having their period or not. So far, I can't tell. Why is it called a period anyway? Poor Dawn had hers yesterday, and when she leaned over, the boys started laughing, and Dougie pulled her sanitary belt and snapped it onto her back. It was funny. (laughs) Dawn started to cry. Barb says it's like a cavern down there. Dark and wet, and only married ladies are allowed to wear tampons, and it takes a lot of Vaseline. They, they look like bullets in a cardboard holder, and I heard a story that Darlene's sister forgot to pull the string, and it got lost up there, and she had to go to the hospital so they could dig it out. It's so frightening being a girl. What else are they not telling us? Thank you. When Chris was nine, he loved crime stories and spy stories and action-adventure stories, so he wrote his own, which he called Cops. And not only did Chris write the entire story of Cops himself, he also illustrated the front cover. Illustrated, it might be an overstatement. There's one illustration on the cover. It has a $100 bill. looks like an American bill. A couple sets of handcuffs two bloody knives, a gun, and what looks like are either bullets or pills and perhaps a hypodermic syringe. So, you know, onwards with cops. One night, late on the first day of spring, four gangsters broke into a banquet. They had knives and guns. They took everything in sight. The people phoned the cops. The police squad couldn't find the gangsters. They looked all over town. The gangsters were not in sight. The cops kept looking. One night, another house was robbed. The cops found one jackknife. They asked the people what kind of knife the leader of the gang had. They said it looked just like the one the cops had found. Then they followed a trail of drugs. And they found their hideout. They circled the hideout and took out their guns. Chapter two, the great escape. The gang heard the cops. They went to talk. They decided to go out the chimney. They took machine guns with them and when they got to the top, the gang fired. The cops got down, they fired too. One cop got shot and the gang escaped. The cops chased them. The cops never found the gang, but they said they would never give up. (laughs) Chapter three, jail. Bit of a spoiler here coming up. (laughs) The cops finally caught the gang and the judge said they should go to jail for 34 years. 
Then the gang were sorry for what they'd done. If that gang ever escapes, the cops will get them. The cops went home and got a good night's sleep. There will probably be another case, but not like this one. The cops were thankful for catching the gang and so were the people. The president was thankful for having such good cops. The spring had no more robberies. Chapter four, the great getaway. One night, the crooks wanted to escape, so they used their knives. When the gourd or guard came in, they stabbed him. The door was still open, so they hurried out of the jail. The cop shot at them. One cop killed one gangster, and the others got away. Chapter five, revenge. One late night, there was a meeting and the gang wanted revenge. So they caught the president and took him hostage. They put a gun in his head and they wanted all the people's money. The people did it. The gang went away. The cops chased them for hours, but soon they gave up. Chapter six, the final chapter, the chase. The next day, the cops went on chasing them. They followed the gang everywhere. They went crashing through houses. Finally, the gang did the only thing they could do. They smashed through the rail and drove off a bridge. When the president jumped out, one cop grabbed him right before he fell. The gang's car sunk. The gang was no more. If there are more gangsters, the cops will get them. And I have a little about the author here. Chris, Chris H. likes mystery books, so that's what he writes about. Things like cops and spies and gangsters and stuff like that. Chris says, I've liked cops ever since I was in second grade and I plan to be one. I'm sorry to say that part did not happen. And then here, as an addendum, there is a, another page that says, other books written by Chris H. Uh, Cops, The Secret of Skull Hill, and then a book called Skiing Champion, which is either Skiing Champion or Skiing Competition. I'm not sure, but it doesn't seem to fit with the mystery theme of the others. And a final blank page uh, with the title Responses, of which there are none. Thank you. <laughs> Our next reader, Paula, has been journaling for a long time, ever since she was a kid. And she recently rediscovered the journal she kept when she was 17 years old, which was a tumultuous time in her life. She says she was exploring sexuality, and she says she was fighting with her parents a lot. We're going to hear all about it. Please welcome Paula to our stage. <laughs> A quick heads up, Paula uses some cuss words in her journal, which we do not bleep. She also talks about sex and drugs and alcohol. There's your heads up. Here's Paula. February 10th, 1986. So, I finally partied with Glenn. I went to that party with three shots of rum, but everyone kept giving me beers and whiskey, Jim Beam, JD, etc. I was wasted. 
I hitchhiked home. These guys picked me up. I got in the car and introduced myself. They did too. And then I looked at the guy I was sitting next to and started kissing him. <laughs> All that week, we called each other. I forgot what he looked like. <laughs> Me, Mel, Sabina, him and his friend went out the following Friday. He wasn't too good looking. <laughs> John B. sent me a dozen white roses. Sweet, eh? On Friday, he had a massive party, and it was pretty good. I met his brother, Paul. He's good-looking, sweet, and 23. He's also a friend of my fucking dad's. <laughs> They're on the same darts team together. Well, the party was wild. I had about 10 beers and did a hit of sunshine. Paul gave me a ride home. My curfew is midnight, and I got home at 11.30. He bought me some smokes, and we listened to his Born in the USA tape. <laughs> right on, eh? When we pulled in front of my house, I thought, what the fuck? And I kissed him for about five minutes. He says, you still have half an hour. Do you want to go home? And I said, fuck no. So we went to Dinosaur Park and parked there. We started necking and making out. He is a great kisser. I had my red Angora sweater on, red nylons, black shoes, and black mini skirt. I looked tits. <laughs> he started going up my skirt and rubbing me. Then he says, let's get in the back seat, okay? I says, fine with me. We did, and he started fingering me like crazy. <laughs> I was so fucking horny. <laughs> he was so good at it. He ate me out, and then we made love. It was so fucking good. The best I ever had. I told him, you are so very good with your hands. He was saying, God, you've got a beautiful tongue, meaning I kiss great. Needless to say, I came home half an hour late. I talked to him on Saturday and Sunday. I am in lust and love. I want to see him tomorrow and screw his body inside out. <laughs> I like him so much. Bye for now. <laughs> May 18th, 1986. On Friday, I learned from a doctor what I suspected for a few weeks. I am pregnant. I am bewildered, confused, upset, and nauseated beyond explanation. I feel so alone, and yet I'm not even alone in my own body. I've never felt so deserted. I am still in love with this child's father, yet I feel he will want nothing to do with me further when he learns of this. <clears throat> I have nobody to talk to. I just want somebody to hold me while I have a monstrous cry. I'm so afraid. I don't know what to do. I'm so scared to tell my parents. I'm afraid they'll take it really badly when what I need right now is support. I'm scared for me and my baby if it comes into existence, but I don't know if I should abort it or keep it. When I think of abortion, I get this nagging feeling like the child is saying, hey, don't I get a say in this? I have to talk to Jim tomorrow. This is Paula and Jim's baby. I wish we were still together. I love him and miss him so much, but I'm alone now. June 19th. 
1986. I've been grounded since my parents learned of my pregnancy. My dad hates me. A week ago today, I had an abortion, and it was the worst thing I've gone through physically and especially emotionally. I miss my baby. I'm getting kicked out, but I don't know when. Dad said, no privileges whatsoever. So how do I find a job or a place to live if I can't go out or make any phone calls? I'm very frustrated. I haven't talked to anyone about this. I'm really upset. I hoped my dad would understand, or at least try to. It hurt me real bad. I still hurt. I'm so depressed. I've even thought about suicide, but I want to live. I miss my friends. I miss walking in the sunshine. I feel so damned alone. I feel like crying, and I hate feeling this way. I'm tired of it. I'm just plain tired. Jim will pay for this one way or another. Thank you. After the show, Paula phoned in to reflect on her journal entries. They're so raw. Um, the first entry I find very funny and I find it bold and I love her. She's just doing what she wants to do. Um, the last two entries, obviously, uh, painful to listen to. Harder because um, I know that uh, three weeks after Paula had that abortion, she became a stripper. Uh, she didn't have any education or job to go to, and, and she ended up doing that job for 16 years, and it still affects her, my life to this day. Um, there's a lot of sadness and aloneness there, and I, and I feel for her. I, I, wish I, could, I wish I could hold her while she had that monstrous cry. I really do. What I felt about my parents at the time was intense disappointment. Um, it was an opportunity for us to come together as a family, and we all blew it. And life could have been very different, but it wasn't. And, um, and we never got over that either. What would I tell 17-year-old Paula? Wow. I would tell her that she is smarter than she thinks she is and that there are resources out there for her and that she just needs to look for them and she's not as alone as she thinks. I mean, I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't change anything of my life, even though so much of it was chaotic and, and disastrous, but it was still magnificent and amazing. And I'm here today and I have a great kid and none of that would have happened otherwise. So I would just tell her to hold tight and pursue your dreams. Do not let fear hold you back. Push through it and be who you are because you are pretty fucking amazing. <laughs> uh, thank you, Dan. It was a great experience. Thank you so much. Bye now.
Vancouver, do we have fans in the room of the Canadian rock band Our Lady Peace? <laughs> There's more people than I expected. Um, when, when, when Jada was 16 years old, she went to an Our Lady Peace concert. She met a random guy in the mosh pit, fell in love with him, and then went home and wrote all about the random guys she met in the mosh pit at the Our Lady Peace concert. And we're going to hear what she wrote right now. Please welcome Jada to our stage. Love me and cherish me forever, even if you forget my face. Remember me and smile at my memory, because for one fraction of my life, you are my everything. <laughs> oh yeah, it gets better. <laughs> I could see so blatantly that music was your life. I could see your joy, feel it, even as you let your body fall back into that wall of people and felt the beat. Oh Lord, it hurts me to know that you are now gone. Probably forever. Your friends are so brilliantly lucky so they must keep you safe, Evan. For me, for you, for everyone that has the fortune of spending but a second in your presence. <laughs> when I first saw you, I simply couldn't look away. I saw blue eyes gleaming like a boy's, beaming through the dark masses like precious gems. <laughs> your face was long, well-shaped, and had a beautifully imperfect jaw. Your fawn brown dreadlocks. <laughs> Tore you apart from the rest. Shorter almost in your eyes, clean and soft and unique. White teeth. Your smile was so innocent and pretty. Thin lips. Your kisses would be sensual. Hot, adoring, intimate. I couldn't fall away from the arms that held me so close or the firm chest that crushed against me. In those moments when the music slowed, I selfishly imagined you and me together, where I was your music and you were my love. <laughs> this is happening right now. The look on your face as you fell backwards and let the pulse carry you was humbling. I love you, I need you, and I will never have you. You are carried, know that, in my mind, heart, body, and soul. Evan, everything is music, underlined. <laughs> Which means that everything is passionate and beautiful. You, change, you changed me that night. <laughs> with your kindness and yourself. I adore you, and I'm going to miss you so much. Our Lady Peace, I know you're out there. So see you around, Kay. Have fun. Invite me in one day. Till then, all my love, Jada.
sometimes people sign up to read it at our show, and they don't just bring one type of writing. They bring a variety of formats. And our next reader, Lauren, is one of those people. We're going to hear some diary excerpts written around age 12. We're going to hear a short story about a mouse and a poem about a rabbit. The short story and the poem both deal with death. Please welcome Lauren to our stage. A quick heads up, Lauren uses a cuss word in her diary, which we do not bleep. Um, I wrote the story when I was about 11, and my teacher marked it with a B-plus and called it a lovely story, which is a little disturbing. Uh, the story is called Shredni Vashtar. Once upon a time, there was a mouse named Shredni Vashtar, but, but everyone called him Vast Shred. Now, Vast Shred was just what his name told, Vast. Vastred had a problem. He always wanted to fly. So one day he went to the very top of the highest mountain in the world. He got a strong wooden box and squeezed himself into it. Then he got his best friend to push him off. (laughs) Down, down he fell faster. Then there was a plop and all was still. Vastred's friend looked over the edge just in time to see Vastred flying with a halo over his head. His dream had come true. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I think I wrote this poem after reading Watership Down, if anyone's read the book, and it might actually mark the day I became an atheist. Uh, The poem is called Waiting. (laughs) Waiting. The rabbit sits alone waiting, waiting for a bird to flutter its wings in flight, waiting for a doe to pass by with a flick of her nose, waiting for the mew of his kittens in spring. Yet still he waits, (laughs) silent, tall waiting. Yet he sees no birds flutter in a light or no doe pass by. He hears not the sound of his kitten's mew, but the wind, the dull, loud, rasping wind that rabbits hear when their time has come. (laughs) When their time has come to die. to leave the warren and join yet a stronger warren, the warren of God. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I was a weird 12-year-old. Okay, and then I had a five-year diary, which I wrote in a handful of times. So January 1st, well, happy new year. I still miss Clay, who's my brother. I got this from grandma, gotta go, January 2nd. We might go shopping at Fashion Valley today. I'm going to get shoes. I might get ballet shoes to work out in. Bye. (laughs) February 22nd, Jules guinea pig died. Miss Piggy, going to go cry my guts out. Bye. (laughs) March 10th, Max's birthday. Max was my cat. Fucking mom gave Max away. What a pisshead. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> May 25th. I hate my cussed mother. She can have foreplay with an inflatable doll named Heidi. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. 
that was not the cat birthday diary entry I was expecting. is grown-ups read things they wrote as kids. Our show was recorded live at the York Theater in Vancouver and produced by Jenna Meisner. Our associate producer is Olivia Nashmi. Our music is by Pottington Bear and Lullatone. And our closing theme is Oh Dear Diary by Sloan. If you like to listen to Grown Ups Read Things They Wrote as Kids, you will probably enjoy watching it, too. We post new videos every single weekday on Facebook. Just search for Grown Ups Read Things They Wrote as Kids and hit like so new videos will show up in your timeline every morning. I'm Dan Meisner. Thanks for listening.